before we get started, most of you know know me. Um, my name is Ben Rudman. Uh, I've been coming here for about a year and a half. Um, it's my beautiful wife, Brianna, my dad, Ron, and my mother-in-law, Diana. <clears throat> I also have two kids in the um, down in the dungeon down there, ages four and two, Bryn and Asher. Um, as uh, BK mentioned, we host a uh, Thursday night anchor group um, where we study the Bible together. Um, and uh, so Sean, Sean's out of town and he asked me to teach and he asked me if I would be open to uh, continuing the, uh, the Exodus study. Um, and I figured that was a great idea because if I mess it up, he can just come back and teach, when I, teach over what I taught. So <laughs> um, we're going to be in uh, Exodus 34. Uh, verses uh, 28 through 35, and uh, this is one of those uh, passages um, with a lot of mystique and significance, and, and I don't know if you, if you guys are anything like me, you, you read these passages and, um, and you, you sometimes might go onto a website or something and, and look at different commentaries, and you start to read all these different disparate meanings, and it's like from all these credit, you have like Matthew Henry saying one thing, and then Spurgeon saying another thing, and then you know, you're like, okay, well... Like, what is, what is this passage about? And this is one of those passages. Um, but I think it's helpful when we come across passages like this to remember something. And there's this, there's this one principle that I think is really helpful when you're studying the Bible and you come across tough, tough areas. Uh, and it's that the Bible is about one subject. I say this all the time. If you come on Thursday night, you know, everybody, I, I just saw like nine eyes roll. Like across. The Bible is about one subject. And uh, I like to say, I, I stole this from somebody. I don't know who I stole it from. But it's, it's that the Bible is a chain of linked thoughts. It's not a string of pearls. So it's not, it's not a series of stories, each with its own utility. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. Instead, it's, it, it's about one thing, and that one thing is the gospel. That's what we call the gospel. The Bible is about the gospel. And when I say the gospel, um, I mean, excuse my guitar pick there. Uh, I, mean, I mean that we are, we are sinners, and we're estranged from God, and that everything that you sense that is wrong in yourself and in the world is rooted there. And on the other hand, uh, Jesus Christ came in and did, he lived, he was a real person, a real historical figure, and he did all the work that you should have done, um, that you're going to fail to do in the rest of your time here on earth, sorry to say. Um, uh, And he took God's punishment due to you and was raised again uh, to a life that he will include you in. So I'm just going to end there and... uh, um, now I'm going to show you how, how powerful the gospel is through this passage, um, and uh, the sermon today is called The Return of the King. <clears throat> and uh, so let's start by reading the section of scripture, Exodus 34, 28 through 35. I don't know if it works this way, because I didn't brief them ahead of time that these were the scriptures, but um, look at that. Um, so I'll just read it. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, he being Moses. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand uh, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone while he talked with him. So he didn't know that his face was glowing. So when, and him being God, by the way. So when Aaron and all, all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and said, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. 
because they all ran away. So he called to them, come back, guys. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments, as commandments all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Um, so they're all scared because his face is glowing, and then so that they could get through it, put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And he would come out and speak with, to the children of Israel uh, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his, his face again until he went in to speak with him, being God. So this is God's word. So what do we have here? We have Moses, um, who Sean in previous weeks, you can download online. Um, it, Moses in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in Previously in Exodus, um, uh, Moses is a type, was shown as a, is, is a type of Jesus. Sorry, Moses is a type of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, um, does anybody remember what, what, um, what part of Jesus' character Moses represents? Do you guys remember? Mediator. Mediator. Yeah, that's right. So he represents Jesus as priest. And what does a priest do? A priest represents the people before God, and then he represents God before the people, right? And so how does he do it? He, he goes to God and he pleads God's mercy, right, on, on behalf of the people. If you, if you remember the passages we were reading, there's all kinds of instances where God, Moses is saying things like, God, you know, for your great name, don't wipe these people out. You, you, did all that. you, you went through all the trouble of bringing them out of Egypt. Don't wipe them out now. It's, you know, what, what is everybody going to say about you, you know, et cetera. And what he was doing was he was appealing to what God had already decided and what God's character, but he was, he was pleading on behalf of, um, of, of, peop- of, of the people and, and leaning on what he knew about God's character and the law. And uh, for, for more on that, go check out Sean's prior sermons. But um, So um, he, he then tells the people of, uh, he comes back and he tells the people about God's law and about God's judgment. Um, he doesn't carry out the people's will before God and doesn't carry out God's will before the people. God does that and the people do that themselves. So he's just mediating. He's just going to and from. So now that we've established that, um, what role does God the Father play in the Old Testament? What does he represent? If Moses is the priest, what, what is God doing? God is, God is giving the law and he's enforcing the law, right? That's what a king does. So... Moses is priest, and God the Father in the Old Testament in this passage is the king. So we have a priest and a king interacting with each other. So he's, God is governing Israel, right? He's saying, this is the law, and here's what I'm going to do if you break it. That's what a king does, right? It's not unlike any, everything you guys already know about how societies work, right? Um, so uh, we... Um, sorry. So uh, we have this priestly mediator who fasted 40 days and 40 nights uh, in the presence of the king and receives uh, a communication to the people from God, and it's the Ten Commandments and other laws, right? And so uh, every time he meets with God, his face is glowing in such a way uh, that his own brother you know, and everyone else run, and he has to call them back in, and they're, so they're terrified. Uh, so we, before we dive into what this means, let's, let's explore the scene a little bit more. So what, what we studied in the prior few weeks, Moses had just had this incredible in-person meeting with God. 
earlier in the chapter and in Exodus 33. At the end of 33, Moses says to God this really famous passage, show me your glory, right? So what does God say? God says, okay, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to have grace on whom I have grace. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. That all sounds familiar, right? Then God says, bring me two tablets, and I'm going to write the law on them again. Because if you remember the first time he gave the law, Moses came down, sees, you know, children of Israel are like actively committing idolatry, and he just smashes the tablets. So Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to to show you my goodness. I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, grace on whom I have grace. I'm going to judge who I'm going to judge, and then I'm going to give you the law. It's kind of a weird interchange. So, um, so where's this going? So Moses is probably thinking like, okay, how is this showing me your glory? Uh, so if we turn to Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7, this is earlier in the same chapter that we're in. Here's what it says. This is, this is as the Lord starts to pass before him. So this is as God is starting to enact what he said he would do, which is show Moses' glory. He says, and the Lord passed before him now. Oh, I'm sorry. And the Lord, <laughs> and the Lord passed before him. Um, and so this is what we're going to see. So the Lord passed before him. Uh, okay, interesting. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, <clears throat> visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Show me your glory, God. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. God says, okay. Here's how I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going to have grace on who I, I'm going to have grace and everyone else I'm going to hold, hold accountable and I'm going to haunt them for hundreds of years. And that's basically what he says right here. Right? So... <clears throat> I mean, show me your glory, God. Imagine that. Like, you're, you're, we're all praying. We're, like, singing this worship, like, some hill songs. Like, like, show me your glory. And then, like, this voice, like, booms in. It's like, yeah, I'm going sh- to have grace on whom I have grace. And then everyone else, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to haunt for hundreds of years. <laughs> right? Like, Moses, Moses was probably, like, like terrified, right? Um, or maybe he wasn't because he knew God's character. But he gave, he, so... Um, he, so, so then God, God pats Moses on the head and sends him down, sends him down the mountain back to all the people. Um, and uh, so he comes down and his face is, gl- is glowing and uh, he calls the congregation near and he has to wear a veil. And this kind of sets a pattern, right? We, we read that. So every, every time God spoke with Moses, he, his face um, had this glow and he had to wear a veil every time he came back to the children of Israel to re- relate the message. So there's something in between the children of Israel because they can't handle that glow. And, it's, and that glow is, is related to what God, God showing his glory, which was, has to do with judging generations for hundreds of years, right? Um, so now we have a couple questions for God, right? Who's going to get your grace and mercy? And what does this have to do with your glory and goodness? And what's with the glowing face and veil, right? So rather than pontificate all the... Um, possible meanings of the glowing face, because I was completely confused when I read all these different commentaries. Um, I'm going to say this. This passage uh, is debated by many scholars and expositors, um, but we're going to focus on what 
uh, Moses' priestly representation means to us and what God's authoritative representation means to sinners. And fortunately, that's laid out by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So uh, perhaps the most helpful commentary of all in this passage. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. So I'll read starting in in verse 5. Verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses. Sounds familiar, right? Because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So Paul is using a literary tool here called juxtaposition. And that's when an author takes two concepts and places them closely together so that you can see them by contrast. So you can see how at first glance, they might look similar, but they actually are quite different. And the two things he's, he's pulling together here are the glow on Moses' face and the glow in us from the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ. I'll, I'll expand on what I mean by that. So, where does he get glory out of all this, first of all? So, Remember back in Exodus 34 when, when Moses asked the question and God you know, answered the answer that we've I've repeated like 50 times. Um, he then gives Moses the law again. Right? He, he, has it, he inscribes it on the Ten Commandments and that's what he gives Moses to take back down to the people. Um, so why is the law a picture of God's goodness and how is, how is God's glory and goodness compatible with what Paul calls glory fading away and the ministry of death? So consider the arguments of a man named Miroslav Volf. That's quite a name. Um, Volf is a Croatian minister uh, from a war-drenched region where uh, many of his countrymen have endured hardship that we've certainly never tasted, but you know some of the wars in that part of the world have been, even in the last, I don't know, 25 years, have been just horrible. Like People have endured, of all different ethnicities and stuff in that region have just endured, endured crazy things. And, and he, w- he lived there. He was, he's part of it, and he's a believer and, and a pastor. And, and he says this. Here's what he has to say on the matter. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. A lot of knots there. But it's saying if God let, so this is a guy who's seen like, you know, men dragged out of houses and shot in the street and 
wives, husband, wives, daughters raped in the streets, stuff like that. You can read his book. He goes into like stuff that he's seen. So he's saying if God didn't make all that right, if he, if he didn't bring swift justice on all that, would he be worthy of our worship? No, he would not be worthy of our worship. If, it was, if he just kind of winked and nodded at that stuff, right? And so it's the law itself that is the institution of God's worth. Glory, by the way, just bear with me on that. I know a lot of you are, I see a lot of furrowed eyebrows and that's fine. <clears throat> Think about that for a minute though. If there were no standards, if God had no standards, no standards, and, no, and didn't enforce those standards, there wouldn't be any weight to him, right? There, wouldn't, there would be nothing behind the concept of God, right? There would be no worth to God. He would be, he'd be like a, he, he'd be like, well, there would be no worthiness. There, there wouldn't be any glory, right? There would just be, there would be this ultra-lenient, sort of weak, you know, passive, probably not really caring, you know, deity that would just be letting things happen on earth and we'd be suffering and he'd be doing nothing about it. Um, and so, and remember that a king establishes the standards and enforces them. Think about all the fairy tales that we read, right? There's, there's tons of them. How many of them have to do with looking back to the good old days of a king who was great and right and just, but he was also a great warrior and a great hero, but he was tender, right? And he had mercy on the people, and now some evil guy's in power, and everybody's yearning for the king to come back. That story, like, it, you're nodding your head, because I'm not even speaking of a specific story, but you've heard it in various forms forever it's it's all over it's in our hearts we are yearning for that he's got but he's got to have a he's got to be just right he's got to have a weightiness to him he's got to have an authority to him so god's glory is really about his kingliness right the weightiness of god is about his kingliness so here's what paul's saying you should take comfort in god's justice which is his glory he's worthy in a world of worthlessness of things that pass away he doesn't. You should see its brightness. But know this, dear sinner. Your rejoicing will fade away like the dusk once the law begins its work in you. And you realize that you too are the object of God's wrath. This is why Paul says the glory fades. Why? The mere application of the law and the fear of God's vengeance cannot bring you near to him. Once you see it, you are driven immeasurably far from him. So the second question, on whom will you have mercy, Lord? The answer is the one who's able to draw near. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. Just bear with me. I know I'm, I'm in the middle of this point. <clears throat> I'll bring it home in a second. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So back to 2 Corinthians for a second. Paul mentions another kind of glory, doesn't he? He calls this glory the ministry of righteousness. Verses 5 and 6 of what we read earlier says that in Exodus 34, God made a covenant, which in verse 7 he says is the ministry of death. 
But there's a new covenant. And there's a covenant that gives life. And he makes the argument in verses 7 through 11 that if the ministry of death was so glorious that it made Moses' face shine and fade, how much more glorious must this new covenant be that brings life? So if, it's, if the old one that kills us and drives us away is glorious, we can't argue with that, how much more glorious if, this, if there's some other idea out there that brings us near, despite all this, despite the feeling when we see God's glory that crushes us, how much more glorious must that be? John 1.17, right after the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. The next verse says, For the law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this answers the question, on whom will you have mercy? The answer is on Jesus. The verse right after the... the, the, uh, Sorry. So in these two verses from the Gospel of John, we understand where Paul gets his argument from that there's something better than the law because the law establishes God's standard in the, enforcement, in the enforcement of it, but it drives you away. But through Jesus, there's something that allows you to be brought near that is separate from the law. So why did Moses have to wear a veil? This is, so this goes back to like why, why we in this room are, uh, are, we're not just the Croatian, you know, the people down in that part of the world who are fighting wars who God's going to judge because of killing and raping and that stuff. We're, part, we're in that camp. That's where we start. And so are the children of Israel. And here's, here's why. This is, Moses had to wear a veil um, because, it, look at the situation again. Remember back in Exodus 33 when Moses was meeting with God um, and, and he set up a tent outside the camp. He would go uh, and God's presence would fill the tent and he'd speak to God face to face and be the priest that he was supposed to be and fulfill his role to the king and the king would fulfill his role and, and give uh, laws back to the people and tell Moses how to enforce those laws. And, and here's the issue. The, this, is, this is the issue. So the king in this case was perfect and infallible and omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. And the priest was a man. You'll notice that God's face didn't shine when he met with Moses. Moses' face shined when he met with God. And so here's the issue. So the brightness and the weight of God's regal splendor, you, you, we see this in the Old Testament. When somebody touches the Ark of the Covenant and shouldn't, it kills them, right? That stuck on Moses' face. Um, so why were, they, why were they struck with fear? They were guilty. The children of Israel were guilty of something. What were they guilty of? <clears throat> Moses had, had, had stood in the gap and God's law-giving and enforcement had come onto Moses and it, it stuck on his face. He had this like eternal sunburn. And he'd come out and he'd speak to the people and the, the people would, would realize that that was actually directed at them. That's why it was so scary. Do, do you know, so in English, the, the, the word guilty is a hard one because it's like, okay, well, what did they do? What sins did they commit then? What did they do? A better word is shame. Do you know what, you know what shame, the difference between guilt and shame is? Guilt is, 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 is the sense of guilt from, from doing something bad. Shame is the sense you get from being bad. Your identity. It's, shame is, that, is, that, is the reason why. <laughs> shame is the reason why. I, I'm going to venture a guess that all of you do this because we do. We all do. Shame is the reason why there's a version of you you let everyone see. 
And, and the version of you, you let everyone see. I'm not even, I'm not even, I'm not condemning you for this. The version of you that you let everyone see is the version you think everyone will like. But there are parts of you that you hide because you know if everyone knew them, they wouldn't like you as much. Right? That's shame. But the glory of God is like, poof, like it just, it blasts, right, Pat? Like we're not going to be able to show up in the presence of God, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal king outside of space and time, able to, the creator of all, and put on like, you know, put our best foot forward, you know? <clears throat> so Moses coming out from meeting with the king, being an inadequate priest, his priestly ministry was paled in comparison to what the king was, right? So he'd come out, and even his priestliness would be just drenched in kinghood. The regal splendor of God would be upon them, and they, would, they, they saw an axe falling, is what the children of Israel saw. And so he had to wear a veil, because they wouldn't dare, they couldn't bear to look at God or think about God. What do we do? When, we, when the axe is about to fall, let's, think about, let's talk about something else. We all sense it. I, I've been in a couple conversations recently where, we, where I brought up something like really heavy and, you know, and we had to talk about it, but like, and everybody in the room is like, let's talk about it, let's cover it, and let's move on. Let's, get, let's go on to the next subject. How about those, uh, I don't know, how, how about those Rockies? You know, like, or the weather, it's snowy, it's been snowy. You know, like that's, and it's rightfully so, right? We're just weak. So Moses had to wear a veil. So if Paul in, uh, sorry, if Paul is right in 2 Corinthians um, that there's a better hope, um, then it would require a better priest, wouldn't it? It would require a priest who's not completely dominated by this regal splendor, right? So turn with me to Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. Let's see where Paul gets this idea from. Who could this better priest be? Hmm. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Sounds familiar. This enters the presence behind the veil. It's not scared. Where the forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there's this priest that's part of a special order. It's starting to sound kind of like Lord of the Ringsy, you know, like the special order of priests. And this like super priest goes right through the veil and isn't just dominated by the regal splendor. He's not fighting against it either. But he's not, he's not, there's no shame. He can go right in. He's a forerunner. He's the, only, he's the first one that can do it. And once he does it, he's a forerunner. It implies that there's people who can come behind him, right? That's what forerunner means, right? The first one, the first goer. That's what forerunner means. So he's the first goer. Then people are going to be able to go in after him. So who is this Melchizedek? Because he's part of the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? In Genesis 14, I'm not going to lay out the whole story, but Abraham comes back from war. And he had uh, he had all these spoils of war, and he gives ten. Per- he meets this the, this this Melchizedek character, and he gives him ten percent of the spoils. He tithes to Melchizedek, and it says Melchizedek was the king of Salem. 
the king of peace. Um, and it says, it says in there that he was a priest of God Most High and a king. He's a priest and a king. So he's able to give the law and enforce it. And he's able to petition on behalf of the people. He's a king and a priest. And Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. He's a king and a priest. So there's the scene in Matthew 22, right? Where Jesus, king and priest, uh, is, is getting just pelted with questions by the religious rulers. The Pharisees ask him whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees ask him, try to pin him on the resurrection, asking whose wife a sevenfold widow will be in, etern- in eternity. And the scribes try to nail him on the first commandment of the law. And he answers each of them admirably, and they puff out their lower lips and furrow their brows and nod and start to just kind of grumble and thank him for his time, and they start to part. And he says, wait, 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 before you go, before you go, I have one quick question for you. How can David call his descendant Lord? That's the question that he asks. You guys are probably wondering what. He, he's referencing Psalm 110 here, where David writes in verse 1 and then in verse 5, Put it up there. Psalm 110, 1, 4, and 5. I'm not going to read the middle verses. Um, verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. There's two people talking up there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That sounds a lot like the kingly God we know, right? The Lord said to someone else who's also, who's David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, you, other Lord, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and so did they. So did everyone. the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They knew exactly what he just did. He answered each one of them from their each individual perspective. The Pharisees were really conservative. The Sadducees were really liberal. The, the scribes were just legalistic. And, uh, and you see, people t- tend to go one way or the other, right? Conservatives say, uh, sure, God is merciful, but at the end of the day, he's king and you better obey him. And liberals say, sure, God is king, but at the end of the day, he's going to be merciful and he's going to forgive you. But they both overplay their hand. And here's why. Think back to Palm Sunday. Remember when we were just Palm Sunday, the week before Easter? Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on what? What did he ride in on? A donkey. On a baby, a baby donkey. A baby ass. They waved palms at him and saying, Hosanna. <laughs> Sorry about your guitar picks. You know, you know they did the exact same thing to uh, Judah Maccabee? You know who that is? If anyone comes from a Catholic background, this is in First Maccabees 13, if you're interested. Um, 190 years earlier, Judah Maccabee led the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire. It's right there in the Apocrypha. 1 Maccabees 13.51 says that he rode in to town and they sang Hosanna, that he rode into Jerusalem after he did that. And you see, and he didn't ride in, he didn't ride in on a baby ass, though. 
You see, in, in the old days, let's go back to the fairy tales, king rides into town victorious from war. What's he ride in on? A horse, a white stallion, you know, and everybody's like, it, it's probably got like red eyes and like you can see it snort, you know. But Jesus rode in on a baby ass, as if to say, I'm the king, and it's as good as one, but it's not done yet. And here's why I think I have license to say that. Think about it at the end of Revelation. What does he ride in on? The book of Revelation, what is Jesus riding, riding in on? He's riding in on a white horse. He's not, riding, he's not coming back on a baby donkey. <clears throat> on the cross, Jesus cried out. Here's what I mean by this. So fast forward to the end of this week, right? So Jesus rides in on a, ba- on a baby ass. They sing Hosanna. He's probably going, he weeps over them. And he said, his response to that is he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, like, like a men, like a men, like a hen gathers her chick, her her baby chicks. I, I would have gathered you up. Um, so he's, he, he, his response is to weep over them, and then you fast forward, and he's on the cross a week later, right? And on the cross, the reason why he he wrote it on a baby ass, and he realized his work wasn't done yet, or he was he was expressing that his work wasn't done yet. He, on the cross, he cries out. What does he cry out? What, are, what he cries out? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's what he says. It means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So he called, remember how he quoted Psalm 110 earlier to talk that, show that he's part of the priest of the order of Melchizedek? Here he's quoting another psalm. He's quoting Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22, you start to read it and you're like, I don't remember any of these things happening to you, David. It, start, it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it t- talks about like all my bones are broken. They've taken my clothes and sold them. Um, in verse 21, though, David says, you have answered me, and he goes on to praise God. Jesus knew what he was doing, though. This is, this is really significant. Jesus knew what he was doing. He's, he quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he's on the cross? And the crowd says what? You guys remember? The crowd says, <clears throat> what's he doing? Is he, he's calling for Elijah to come save him. Right? He's calling... He's, he's calling for something. Let's see. Let's watch. Let's see what happens. When David cries out in Psalm 22, he says, you have answered me. Right? When Jesus cries out after he quotes Psalm 22, what happens? Silence. And then he dies. Or no, sorry. Then he says, it is finished. It is finished. And then what happens? The veil was torn. So you remember back in Exodus, when God let his goodness pass by Moses, and as he did, he said, I'm going to give peace to whom I choose, and I'm going to judge the guilty. I'm going to like haunt them for 300 years. And this so overpowered Moses' priestly ministry that he needed a veil between him and the people because the people couldn't handle it. Well, God did it. God judged the guilty. He did. He judged the guilty. The Bible says that our sin went into Jesus' body and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. He didn't get help. He didn't get the help that David got, that we get. That's because all of our guilt, all the shame that I talked about, all the shame that the Serbian warlords had in that example, all that shame, all the shame of the children of Israel when they gazed upon Moses' face, all of that went into Jesus' body 
and died. Why? I mean, okay, so it's like, you're like, really, Ben? I mean, if you're, if you're really being intellectually honest right now, you're, you're probably like, I get it. Okay, that's the Christian doctrine. I understand. Uh, but lots of other people died. Lots of people have died more gruesome deaths than Jesus. I've thought this. I'm sorry. It's true. Lots of other people have died more physically gruesome deaths than Jesus. But keep in mind that this is, remember the Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, remember the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, when it says Jesus was there from the beginning. Like this is an eternal God on the cross. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been a community for all eternity. And the Son is there on the cross. Like all of our relationships on this earth are just a picture of this. They don't need us. They're perfect. They're all really, really good at being friends and fathers and sons. and They don't need us. We're a picture God wasn't lonely up there. We're just, we're, all of our relationships are just a picture. Think about the most like, painful relationships. When you see really husband-wife relationships, parent-child relationships, those are broken through death, how crushing that is for the person. Well, imagine if the people were eternal beings who had been with each other for eternity and are outside of space and time, and anything that happens to them is eternal. You have an eternal God. I, I'm going nosebleed theology stuff, but just... just let yourself understand as much of this as you can, because I don't fully understand it, but you can understand part of it. You have this eternal God on the cross who is dying, and he says, why have you forsaken me? And he hears nothing. There aren't, there's no time. It's temp, there's no temporal. Jesus wasn't temporarily separated from the Father. He's eternal. He was eternally separated from the Father. Yes, he's sitting at God's right hand right now. He, I'm not saying that he didn't rise from, from the dead and, and was seated, but time doesn't move like this for them. I'm not trying to turn this into like a Marvel superhero movie or something. But time doesn't go like, it's not like, well, like Jesus and God are like, remember when you forsake me? Oh yeah, that was the worst for a few hours. That's not, that's not what that is. God's, God's, the, the, God, this is an eternal God. So this is an eternal event. And, and this is a breaking, a severing of the Trinity for, it's serious. This is, this is immense. So hopefully I've made my point. I'm not going to belabor this anymore, but. This eternal separation tore the veil because this was what it was. What it took. This is what it took for it to for God to still be just like we talked about, to still be worthy of our worship, and for Him to be able to say, "It is finished. I did. I succeeded in taking all this evil in this whole world, all that is broken that we see all around us." I, I have a coworker. I, there's a woman who works for this company that I am involved with. She, she's grandma. She had a five-year-old daughter pass away last week. Five-year-old, or five-year-old granddaughter passed away. Sorry, five-year-old, five-year-old girl. I have a four-year-old daughter who's going to turn five in August. It's you hear news like that, and you, it, it, it's just like it's just your your heart breaks. But that's in while your heart's breaking, you're like, well, that's certainly not enough. You you start scrounging through the files to find some comfort and some, you know, that, like that needs to get righted, right? And so this had to be a really significant event in order for God the Father to still be worthy of our worship and say. Me judging Jesus was enough to take care of all that, right? So, in 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says, But their minds were blinded, blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. So he's talking about the, why the children of Israel don't understand, what, what, what they don't understand. Sorry, he's talking about what they don't understand. He's saying, like, if, if we don't have Christ, the veil, if you don't have Christ, the veil's still there. It, there's nothing else 
Like, it's going to take an eternal God. It's going to take one of the three of the Holy Trinity getting cut off. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take that to make all this right. And if you don't have that, and then you don't live in that, and you reject that, then the veil is still there. You need that veil. Otherwise, the, glory, the, the priestly ministry is insufficient. That's what it's saying. In verse 18, it says, But we all, but we all, with unveiled face, we being believers in Christ, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, this is, it gets great here, beholding in a mirror the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, the same image as the glory of God. We're being transformed into that same image. The, glo- the glow's on your face just as by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is, is changing you. So and this is why. So Jesus is both king and priest and sacrifice, as we just showed. And there's, there's not only no need for a veil, but he's brought you so close that he's changing you into his character. So now you're not only cast afar off and separated, you're brought so close so close, you're not even, you don't, it's not like you even get to sit in the same room and not go, uh, at the, it's, it's, it shines on your face, it doesn't bother you, and it, and it changes you from the inside. It doesn't only not only kill you, but it changes you. And so, it's, it's, this is a really hard point to make, but I'm going to close with um, a quote from my favorite biblical commentary, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's in the third book, which is why I titled this sermon, Return of the King. Uh, the, trilogy, the entire tr- trilogy, it, you watch the movie, the movies are really good. I like the movies, but the, the movies are not about the ring getting destroyed and like letting go of everything. That's, that's not what the Lord of the Rings is about. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings <clears throat> is about a king returning to his country, the righteous king. So this king, Aragorn, had... Uh, fought all the battles, and he had uh, he'd saved all the people, all his people from these like really, really from evil, and uh, and he's given a crown and a throne when he returns, right? Just like how Jesus was given a crown and a throne when he returns, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? And then two weak little hobbits who are small, and their feet are hairy, and they eat lots of food, and they love comfort. Basically, they're Americans are rescued from Mordor. They're rescued from Mordor, this broken, sad world where through valor and courage, they really just survive. That's what the hobbits did. Heroically, but they just kind of hung on. They persevered. That's all the hobbits did. And um, so they're weak. They, they didn't impact the battle. They, you know, They did some things. They were used. They did cool stuff, but they didn't single-handedly win this or anything. And they had to get rescued at the end. And uh, the king uh, gets up from his throne when they, when they show up after getting rescued. And he, he bows before them. I'm going to read you this quote. Okay? So Sam is a hobbit. <clears throat> and Frodo is a hobbit. Sam and Hobo are the two... Hobo? Frodo are the... <laughs> Sam, Sam, <laughs> Sam and Frodo are the two hobbits, in case you're not familiar. So, and then to Sam's surprise, so they're walking into this, king, this hall, and the king stands up from the throne... And to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, the king stood up and bowed his knee before them. And taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, he led them to the throne. And setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so that his voice rang over all the host 
saying, praise them with great praise. You see, he hasn't just welcomed them in. He got up from his throne and he bowed before them. They weren't worthy of this. And he sat them on the throne. In Revelation, it says we're going to get these crowns. This is the same thing. And you are going to feel like a hobbit when you get this crown because you're going to feel a lot more, you identify a lot more with the children of Israel when, at the end of the day when you're confronted with God's law, really. If you, don't, if you don't, read the Sermon on the Mount and just make a little chart of things I do and things I don't. Like You're, you're going to, if, if, if you're humble at all, the, the law will crush you and you will feel like a hobbit. Um, and if you are in Christ and the veil is torn, you not only get brought near so that you can hang out and you know, be in the king's presence, he's going to run out and greet you, clothe you in royal clothes, sit you on his throne for all eternity. This is, this is as true today as it will be for all eternity. So, we should allow the glow on Moses' face to strike fear into our hearts but only enough so that we can righteously or rightly see his legal splendor, regal splendor. And then we should allow his priestly ministry to bring us into his arms and let his beautiful grace transform us into royal children. Look to him and believe. Amen.